Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So you're hearing Betsy Kaplan's uh, high school playlist here, I think. Uh, so this is a show we, we, we begin to think about this. By the way, there's no introduction today because Kyle Wolf is out today. Um, we begin to think of this show initially as a show about isolation, which it, it is in a way. Uh, but then we started calling it Cut Off From Shore because it's really sort of about people who for different reasons are cut off from everything that they knew. Um, in the second half of the show today, you're going to hear about kind of a pseudo-island nation. It's called Sealand. It's uh, off the coast of Great Britain. Uh, it's a sea platform, a relic of uh, Britain's defenses during World War II. But it was sort of been colonized by various people who've tried to live out there and use it as kind of an independent principality. And you'll, uh, we'll talk to the person who's li- who lived there the longest, a guy named Michael Bates, who spent about 20, 20 years of his life mostly out on that sea platform. Not a very big place either. But we're going to begin... <clears throat> was something very different uh, about a group of people who chose uh, to be cut off from everything that they knew uh, for different reasons. Because, in fact, when you start thinking about space flight, long space flight, and maybe uh, human beings uh, in a place like Mars, you realize that one of the challenges is just going to be getting along, you know, having a group of people who get along. So here to talk about that uh, in studio with me is John Matthew, a professor of management at UConn and a contributor to the Group for Organizational Effectiveness. He's an expert on team and leadership dynamics. He was involved in coming up with some research uh, and some strategies uh, for this group uh, that included another one of our guests, Dr. Shana Gifford, science, scientist in residence at the St. Louis Science Center, as well as chief medical officer of the High Seas Forum Mission on Mauna Loa, Hawaii. So, um, Dr. Shana Gifford, I'm going to have you kick this off. Uh, this was a group of people who spent, I think, 365.5, but who's counting, uh, <laughs> days inside what? Kind of a two-story dome uh, on the slopes of Mauna Loa? That is correct. 1,200 square feet, which in New York is, you know, the size of a palatial apartment, and in Los Angeles is the size of your closet. And how many people were in there? Six of us total. Um, and so explain what the purpose of this was. What what was the purpose of, of clustering six people in a small space for a year? <laughs> well, very, we're very six particular, or in some cases peculiar people. We're simulated astronauts, so we were chosen for characteristics that would be astronaut-like, and have high resilience on a long-duration space mission. So there was myself, a doctor, and a journalist. We had a commander who was a soil scientist. We had a physicist from Germany. We had an astrobiologist from France. We had an engineer from MIT. And we had a space architect. And we were there basically to study what a crew might do over the course of a one-year mission on the surface of Mars. So, um, John Matthew, one of the ways that you could do something like this is to really carefully pick people that, given whatever kind of behavioral science uh, you have available to you, 
uh, that uh, carefully pick people that you know or you hope anyway would have the optimum chance of getting along. First of all, that turns out not to be necessarily completely an option, particularly, I guess, because of the international nature of some of these missions. That's in fact true. There are certainly some individual differences that you'd want to, you know, help to ensure is in the team or, on the other hand, uh, try to avoid. You don't want high neurotics or uh, other kinds of personality problems, but it's difficult to orchestrate that selection. Uh, most likely, any kind of trip to Mars is going to be an international crew where the U.S. will maybe send one or two people out of the roughly six that are going to be there. Um, so our international partners are going to have their choices as well. So it's really about trying to optimize the mix of people who we have in there with limited options. Um, so, yeah, you could say to Japan, send us your least neurotic space <laughs> architect, but you don't know that they'll necessarily do that. So it's, I guess it's more important, uh, John, to have strategies, right? So, uh, give, give us a sense, like, in terms of what you were teaching uh, Dr. Gifford's team, what kind of strategies were you giving them? Uh, well, one point of clarification is I've worked with several of the NASA analogs. They right. have like 15 different analogs that test or, or put pressures of different types on different kinds of crews. I didn't happen to work directly with, right. uh, with the high seas ones. But in all cases, what you're trying to look for is really compounds or synergies where there's going to be compatible kinds of individual differences as opposed to uh, the old right stuff where you were looking for that one type of personality um, you know, profile for the individual or the, maybe the pair of people who are going to be in the sky, uh, space capsule. Here you're really looking for combinations of things. So, for example, teams need somebody who's going to organize work. They need somebody who's going to help to build the team. They need somebody who's going to mix it up and challenge things every once in a while. Um, so to ensure that there's not only the technical competencies on the team, but there's also these other roles that can be fulfilled by someone on the team, it's tough to get that exact kind of, kind of mix and balance. So, um, Dr. Giver, give us this kind of sense of, um, uh, paint us a picture of life inside the dome. I mean, what was a typical day like? So a typical day would start at different times for different people, and this sort of arose spontaneously. But uh, some of us would wake up quite early, 5 or 6 in the morning, and uh, start to either exercise, that's what I would do, or the commander would start to answer emails, <laughs> which he mm. would do for hours a day. Um, then we'd get around to cooking and maybe cleaning, and we'd have to feed and water our crops. I was culturing food, yogurts and cheeses and bread. I would have to get up and take care of those. And then, like the scientist farmers we were, once the daily chores were taken care of, we would actually get to do some science. So um, as we were just discussing, there are different analogs for space, and we all do different kinds of science. And we would do team activities. We would go out to suit up, go out and do geology. We would bring in rocks and do some, some different experiments on them. We would try to devise how old the rocks were, where they came from, similar to things people would do on Mars. And then, of course, you have to maintain the hab, just like having a house in space, only to an order of magnitude, you have to keep the whole thing from falling down. So we'd spend a lot of the day fixing the habitat, working on the power and water systems, getting everything clean, and then we do it all again the next day. I have to ask if you watched the movie The Martian, either before or after you did this. <laughs> Fox Searchlight was kind enough to beam us up a copy. And, yes, we did watch it. We actually had a special movie night just for The Martian. Um, I assume that's not how you grew your crops. And Matt Damon has a particular – I know you had a composting toilet. I, maybe maybe you did grow your crops that way. You know uh... – as the science officer, it was my duty to take care of the composting toilet. Mm. And um, I, I can say two things about it. One, it was definitely the crappiest job in space. <laughs> but two, um, it did provide us, once you convert you know, human waste using microbes and essentially sawdust mix, 
it becomes fertilizer within weeks. Unfortunately, we just didn't have the space to grow crops that way, though we did, Colin, try to grow potatoes. Mm. And we got some lovely greens, but we didn't quite get a potato. <laughs> All right. So, um, John, when you're dealing with these uh, simulations and, and giving people advice about this, I assume that they're sort of, and, and we should say that your work also includes, for example, surgical teams, you know, medical teams that have to work very closely under a tremendous amount of pressure, not a lot of chances for do-overs in some of these situations. Everybody's got to get along. Everybody's got to pull together or things don't go that well. So these these kinds of this kind of theory uh, and practice has applications all over the place. Uh, But when you're working with these teams, once again, the difference is that maybe on the surgical team, you know, you could take a mental health day at some point. But there's no mental health day for 365 days for a team like this one. So are there specific things that that like do this, do that. If something comes up, here's how you get past it. I mean, give us a sort of a blueprint for something like that, how, how to resolve, say, a, a small conflict. That's a, that's a great question. And the, the simple fact of the matter is is that we won't necessarily be able to get the perfect mix of people together on a team. We never, never can do that. So the issue is not so much trying to give them a checklist or specific do this, do that, but to give them some skills so that they can understand how to best uh, develop themselves and to repair problems and things of that sort. Uh, One of the techniques we use is something called Debrief Now. It's basically a tool to get people to uh, surface issues that they're dealing with and then handle them in a productive way. And what we know about teams is that most teams uh, have a couple of tendencies that we wouldn't expect. First is that if you put together a diverse set of teams such as what was in high seas, People tend to talk about the things that they have in common, not the unique things. And mm-hmm. the whole reason you put together a diverse team is to leverage that those unique kinds of capabilities and perspectives. And the second part of this is that people don't like to spontaneously just talk about uh, the ugly stuff. They'll, they'll swallow a lot of conflict for a while. And then when it does bubble up and come out, it comes out in a very ugly way. Uh, so what the debrief does is it solicits individual anonymous input, and then we have – a, an algorithm that allows us to identify what seems to be the hot buttons, the, the things that people are struggling with. And then we give them a, a guide, a, uh, a discussion list, which will help them discuss things in a productive way, uh, which they might not do spontaneously on their own. So the whole idea is to give them something that they can use because, uh, like the movies or like Shana can tell you, there's a communication delay. It's not as though mission control is going to have a coach or counselor who's going to help them out. They're going to have to work through these things on their own. Well, I just want to make sure that I understand this. So, that, in other words, this tool allows – you said anonymous input, like everybody can just be throwing stuff in there saying this is going on, that's going on? Right. There's lots of different ways to do this, but this particular tool that uh, has been developed by the Group for Organizational Effectiveness, those, who are, those are the folks I partner with on this project, um, gathers information anonymously from individuals. They can use an iPad. Uh, and then that information is, goes through our algorithm and it comes back with a dashboard that says, here are some hot-button kinds of issues that you probably want to deal with. Uh, here are some other issues that if you have time or inclination you may want to uh, discuss. Here are some other things that you've got total agreement on and, and things are going well. Uh, but then the, the crew gets to deal with that on their own. Nobody is telling them what they have to do or how they have to do it. It's their, their tool and their information to work with as they see fit, and that's where – they really have control of things, and these teams are going to be very ad- autonomous once they start getting outside of Earth's orbit. What, what Dr. Shana Gifford, one thing that occurs to me is that, you know, I mean, like I work with a team here at work, but then I go home and I say to my significant other, you know, Betsy yelled at me again today. Uh, and my significant other says, don't be such a coward. you got to stand up to Betsy. Uh, that isn't even all that helpful. But um, – uh, 
you you couldn't do that. I mean, I'm sure maybe that's a little bit the way your life is like at the St. Louis Science Center too. You go home, you talk to somebody else, but you you can't go anyplace, right? There, you you the, the people that you're having trouble with are you know they're right there, and there's nobody else to talk to, at least not in person. They're right there in your face. Yeah, I can verify that's how the debrief now tool does work. I use that on a different mission, at the Hera mission, the Johnson Space Center, on an asteroid trip, simulated trip. And um, it is anonymous in the sense that you, your, your name is not affixed to the fact that you think Joe snores too loudly or uh, that our geology task was really boring. But it isn't anonymous in the sense that there's only four of you or six of you. And it's usually fairly obvious who is putting forward that piece of information. Not always. Mm -hmm. um, but often. And so you get prompted. We were prompted uh, during the Hera mission once a day at dinner time to fill out this survey, and then we'd go through it uh, later on, I think maybe an hour later as a team. And it was usually fairly clear, and people would just say, you know, that's me, that's me, I think this, I think that. I think with the value of a tool like that, maybe something you could use when you go home to your wife, is to be like, so here's the trouble I encountered today, and I consider dealing with it in a variety of ways. Honey, how would you have dealt with this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of a neutral platform. So, I mean, um, you know, at times we would be we would be awoken, you know, with an alarm in the middle of the night, and people would feed back and say, I'm not getting enough sleep. And you know, who was that? Okay, that was me. We didn't get enough sleep because of the alarm. So I'm going to propose that we consider, you know, going to bed an hour early tonight. What do you all think about that? So it's more like a prompt. A, it reminds you that there's something that, that happened that you wanted to talk about. And B, it brings up the opportunity to talk about it and for anyone with anything to say about it to say it. So it is a good tool. And, you know, in theory, you could use it at home to remind you of all those things you meant to complain to your spouse about. Um, did you just name some of the hot button issues, sleep, boredom, snoring, or are there other things <laughs> that tend to be hot button issues? Um. You know, show me a group of people that doesn't have a series of issues in a year, right? Uh, two humans will have a series of issues in a year, six humans for sure. You know, some of the issues were what you would expect in any roommate scenario. Dishes, cleanliness, you know, loudness at night or early in the morning, that generic things like that. And some of them were, were very profound fundamental issues of leadership, what it is we wanted in terms of leadership in the dome or from mission control. And as we, you know, as can be attested by just about any specialist is that there's basically three places to put your stress when you're in space or in isolation, you know, against the people around you, against the ground or mission control or the other, you know, the people who are, are giving you orders from outside or against yourself. And the crew tends to align with either itself versus the ground or against itself um, in, in sort of groups in the in the crew, depending on the size of the crew and the dynamics. So we were trying our best not to have either situation where we were. It was us versus the ground or us versus each other. And that's it's difficult. It's difficult in any small group. Um, John, I would assume that maybe one advantage, I don't think there are a lot of advantages in terms of uh, stabilizing peace and harmony and things like that in such a complicated and, and tightly knit setting. But one advantage you have is you can sort of control some of the other stressors a little bit. I mean, for example, a lot of us found it incredibly exhausting to go through this electoral season. At the end of it, I was a mess. Um, You can at least take things like that out of the lives of the people in a situation like that. And I assume that's something that's very desirable to do. They have enough stress as it is. 
Well, I, I, I think to get them focused in on, on what their mission is all about and, and helping them to self-sustain is really the critical piece of all this. Uh, you know, when you, you think about these extreme kinds of environments, it really is mission-driven. Uh, in these analogs, uh, we know that there's, uh, you know, for an, a high seas, we knew that if something really did go wrong, they, they always have in the back of their mind that they could be pulled out. Uh, if they're on their way to Mars, that's not going to be an option. Um, some of these other analogs, well, we've worked with uh, astronauts at Nemo, they're underwater. Mm. Uh, so there is real danger uh, that they're facing, uh, and, the, and the stakes are real. So that, that tends to change some of your orientation. But I agree with Shane is that the, the issues really do come down into twofold. One is really work or mission types of team processes, uh, but the other ones are more of the roommate kinds of issues. And some of the, the things that we've looked at are things like you know, preferences for order, orderliness versus more creativity, uh, privacy versus interaction with people, uh, decisiveness versus deliberation. Uh, and what we found is that when you get people who are inconsistent with their life preferences like this, it tends to fester and breed some things like conflict or a lack of cooperation. And uh, those things tend to grow over time. So while we've examined them for weeks or months at a time, when you start talking about years at a time, um, and you know the stakes are very high. Uh, let me ask you one more thing, John, which is that, um, for example, uh, and, and I want to ask Shana about this too, but um, I'm the kind of I was an only child, uh, and uh, my father was an only child, and my son's an only child, and I need quite a bit of time by myself. Uh, I would imagine that washes me out of this process right away. Well, it's actually very very tricky kind of combination for the the right kinds of people for this and that normally we see uh, in teams that people who are fairly extroverted are actually seen as being very good teammates. Well, in these confined, long-duration kinds of environment, those extroverts can kind of get on people's nerves. Uh, So there's this weird combination in that you want to see people who are high on introvert or actually want to, you know, are comfortable being alone in their own skin, as well as can cooperate and work well with other people. So normally people gravitate one way or the other, but you actually want people who are comfortable in both kinds of roles. So Dr. Shana Gifford, um, one thing that I I learned about this was just to continue with this conversation, part of the conversation, if you wanted some me time, your only option was to put on a space suit and go on a simulated outdoor Martian terrain walk, right? That's That was me time? <laughs> well, uh, in a certain sense, that was me time. But in another sense, you always, has, always had the radio cracking in your ear, and you always had someone like me saying, so where are you guys right now? You know, and you had to call in to Mission Control. You had to talk to your teammates. Um, me time could also be acquired either by going into the biology lab and doing experiments, uh, going into the workshop and building something and closing the door behind you, going into your own crew quarters and closing the door. Um, the trouble with space and me time, and John can attest to this, is that there is no your, your individual identity gets a bit swallowed up by the mission. That mm-hmm. can be good and that can be bad. But but a perfect example is in the middle of the night when the alarms go off because the power system is failing, your me time has just come to an abrupt halt. Right. <laughs> when your batteries are running low or your water's gone too hot and you're no longer cooling in your suit, your me time is over. So you know you can always try to take me time in a variety of different ways. But the the mission has precedence, and yeah. what your crewmates may need has precedence. 
you know, uh, just to continue with that for a second, one thing we should, I think, emphasize, too, is this wasn't, I mean, we call it an analog or a simulation, but what it wasn't was some little game. I mean, you guys had to make some very serious commitments, including uh, the, the commitment to not leave. Uh, two, two of you, when one of them was you, had deaths in the family, which you were essentially unable to attend to in person. Maybe you can talk about that. Absolutely. And, you know, by the way, John is correct. Introverts and extroverts, we had three of each, and I think that was a good balance. But you have to be comfortable being whoever you are. And that that comfort in your own skin and comfort knowing that your ability to control the world in space, your analog, and your life in general on Earth, knowing that fundamentally your level of control is low, allows you to be adaptable. And that's the ultimate thing that you're trying to be is adaptable to your life in space, on Earth wherever. And yes, my grandmother passed away and it happened in stages throughout the mission to the point where I got, I had to make a final video to her. Mm. And what do you say? You say, you know what? I'll say to her the same thing I would have said if I were there. And that's because that's all you ever have. And, and so you have to be very flexible, very adaptable. The thing you want to be in space is a social genius. You want to be able to genius the situation that you're in with your crew and your own life, too, because you're still socially interacting or trying to with people back on Earth. And you have to still have an impact on their lives, positive impact. So I hope that answers your question. That's a great answer to the question. Um, John, one of the things that they do uh, as when they do these analogs is try to simulate the delay. So uh, if I want to Skype with my grandmother, my grandmother's not here anymore, but, um, you know, we could just talk back and forth. That's probably not going to be a reality uh, based on all the movies that I've watched anyway. It's not going to be a reality in space. It's not going to be a reality on Mars. So they do these delays. I would imagine that, that, that once again, th- there's a way in which that's not quite as satisfying as you and me talking back and forth right now. Well, well, it's certainly not. And and uh, at least the the science right now it says yes, there will be a delay, and it will increasingly delay as they get further and further away um, from Earth. Uh, you, you get an interesting dynamic in that um, NASA is very much a command and control centric type of organization, and that the ground uh, has the all the infrastructure and and, and tons of people. So it, it very much that's where the control of a mission is going from, and that's true if you're going to go to the moon or if you're going to have the International Space Station. But when they go to Mars, they're going to have to have control on that crew. That's going to have to be them being self-sustaining. So you see an interesting dynamic with some of the communication delays, and at first it becomes kind of impoverished. It gives them a disadvantage. But at times, at least in some of the analogs, then they just start to sort of ignore mission control, and they really take responsibility and control over their own operations. And it, it almost becomes a preference of them at times. Um so, Dr. Shana Gifford, one question that I would have would be about reentry, um, because the other thing that would happen in a situation like this is that you and five other people are experiencing something that nobody else can really com- wrap their minds around, or at least you have a, a direct experience that is probably difficult for other people to understand vicariously, uh, and that you're probably, whatever the problems you might have had uh, over your, the course of your year together, bonded with these people in a rather unique way. So, so what's it like to kind of rejoin society? and rejoin everybody else. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, John's completely right about the time dilation as you sort of develop this, this independence. And even when Mission Control does call you, you're like, did, did we talk to you? Did we call you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's something we can help you with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you become this kind of island, sometimes literally, as your later guest will attest, and sometimes just sort of functionally. And what happens in space as time goes on is time 
time contracts and dilates in weird ways. So we started to feel like time was passing on Earth much faster than in our own dome. So when the mission was over, it felt like we'd only been gone four months, maybe, maybe five months at the outside. And when we got back, everyone else had experienced a full year. We'd missed the birthday of every human on the planet. Mm -hmm. We had not been present for major historical events. And we sort of just had to shrug that off and say, so whatever what happened, was important, just tell me. <laughs> just, just pretend like I probably don't know and just tell me. And after getting over all of that, um, you basically have to run on and apologize to everyone who you may have let down. <laughs> I'm so sorry I wasn't here. What did I miss? How can I help you? And once you get past that, there's a little bit of a gap in technology, new phones, uh, new cars, new things that happened while you were gone. You have to remember how to drive and how to look both ways across, while crossing the street and how to go grocery shopping and how to use money. Mm -hmm. I hadn't used money in 366 days. I couldn't, I, I couldn't figure out what this thing called a wallet was for when I first came back. I knew I needed it, but I couldn't remember why. Keys, even the most basic things. So there's, there's fundamental day-to-day -day issues. Um, and, and then there's greater scoping societal issues that you've missed. So you sort of get back into the groove of the small things like keys and, and money while you're reintegrating into the reality of the fact that you've missed a year and therefore missed a lot of information and a lot of history. Um, John, uh, this w was a mission, as most m contemplated missions now, uh, that involved both men and women. Uh, I suppose it might be possible for someone to construct an argument saying, well, that introduces like another level of built-in dynamics that have to be dealt with. Can you say a little bit about that? Well, um, there, there are always ways that you can divide up or diversity in a team. Uh, men and women are one. Um, international uh, origin is going to be another one. Uh, whether you're an engineer or a different type of scientist uh, is another one. So there are the, these uh, diversity issues um, that are going to be salient. And the, the real issue is, is to avoid compounding them. Uh, there's something called fault lines, which says when there are different kinds of diversity and they happen to align one on top of the other, then you create a real rift in a team. So if all the older members are also men and they're also white and they're also in engineering and the other members are the scientists and they're women and they're ethnically diverse and they're younger, boy, you're going to have a real solid line between people. That's going to be a huge challenge. So when they're putting these teams together, the idea is to not only get the diversity of knowledge and experience that you want in there and the proper kinds of personality types, but to get the mixes right so that you don't create these, these huge divides that can be uh, you know, a potential uh, problem area in the future. So, um, Gina, I have to ask, why did you sign up for this? Um, you know, I mean, I would never do it, A, because I'm incompetent and nobody would want me, but also because it just it sounds like a, just an incredible personal strain and when I walked out back out of the dome, I'd still be, in, you know, in Mauna Loa. Uh, why'd you do it? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm sure that if some mission would take you, if you just wait long enough, they'll be recruiting, uh, <laughs> recruiting people. So watch what you say. Um, but B, it was an honor to serve. And um, C, mostly because I had always wanted to be an astronaut and I've been contributing to the Mars mission since I was literally a kid, since I was 18 years old and started designing spacesuits. And here was the time to test my convictions. And here was the time to put 18 years, 20 years of training to the test of all the, all the degrees and all the practicing and all the spacesuit design and all the engineering and everything I had done. What does it mean? 
Well, you have to take it out into the field and find out what does it what does it mean? What good has it done? Am I actually able to contribute to a Mars mission? The answer is yes. Yes, in ways I could not have expected. So it's like you got to take you got to build it in the lab and then take it into the field. This was quite literally a field test of me and uh, all kinds of people like me. That's why we do these missions. And, and, and she's a, a double volunteer. I didn't actually realize that she was one of our HERA participants. Uh, that uh, names are kept anonymous to us researchers. Um, but for her to do um, a, you know, a week or two in, in a capsule in Houston and then to volunteer for a year, um, you know, I both salute her and I, yeah, I think you know, the, the commitment's great and she's a little crazy too. <laughs> I'll be signing up for Nemo next if they'll have me. Is that, is that really true? Will you really do that? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And Nemo's underwater. How long would you be underwater if you did Nemo? Typically, how does that work? Um, a couple of weeks, typically, John. Yeah, uh, does that sound about right to you? Yeah, they're usually a, a week to two weeks. And uh, the key thing is that Nemo is real astronauts who are really training to use the equipment. They're in these buoyancy suits to simulate the kinds of weightlessness or gravitational forces that they'll be subjected to. So uh, that's not an experiment. That's preparation for the real deal. Um, you know, uh, I don't want to pry into anybody's personal life, uh, Shana, but, uh, there, you know, one of the things one reads about is that, that, you know, in space, eventually, people on long missions, people being human beings and having normal drives, they're going to want to uh, make sexy time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not asking you what went on in the dome. I think what happens in the dome stays in the dome. But just in ter- could you talk about sort of the, either the wisdom or lack of wisdom of that? I would imagine that would be a pretty divisive thing if you've got a small group of people and two of them are hooking up, as the young people say. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the primary drive among humans is for intimacy and how that intimacy manifests. Uh, varies. You know, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's physical and everything in between. The Greeks had different categories of it. You know, the philios, the eros, you know, things that are based on strong bonds of friendship and things that are based on strong physical bonds and everything in between. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that that intimacy is something that makes us human and that failing to achieve the intimacy we we desire is one is something that kills people and and causes them uh, it causes them to be ill to uh, to not function at, at peak performance. So I think it's important for people to always just be honest. You know, I need a really close good friend. I need support. I need a confidant. I need someone to back me up here, or whatever else it is that you need. Just state it. Be open and honest about it, and find what accommodations can be made. I mean, John can attest to the fact that the thing, one of the things that, that causes people to misbehave in any organization is there are things they're trying to achieve but can't. There are um, things they need, but they are, they aren't available. And so just, you know, be honest about it. We're going to have to stop it there. We've been talking to Dr. Shana Gifford, a science and residence at the St. Louis Science Center, uh, as well as chief medical officer of the High Seas Mission on Mauna Loa, Hawaii, which is the thing we've been talking about. Uh, John Matthew is professor of management at UConn and a contributor to the Group for Organizational Effectiveness. He's an expert on yeah. team and leadership dynamics. He's going to stick around and try to help out with this whole problem of Betsy yelling at me. Uh, but we're also going to be talking. We're going to go from Nemo underwater to a sea platform. Uh, above the water right after this.
All right. Um, yeah, this is actually our first break. <laughs> we went really long uh, talking about outer space. So we're going to shift gears here. We're going to um, leave the, the land and, and conversations about what people do under the sea and talk about what people do when they are situated just a little bit uh, above the sea. Although, in fact, uh, the story of sea land does involve uh, some, some habitats uh, that go below the ocean waters. This is uh, the story of kind of a micro-nation uh, joining us uh, through the miracle of Skype, I hope anyway. To talk about it is Michael Bates, who probably spent more time in spe- sea land than any other human being. He's also the author of Holding the Fort, which is about this experience. Michael Bates, welcome to our show. Hi, Colin here. Thank you for having me. Uh, all right, so it'll probably take uh, Skype a little while to warm up. I've noticed that this ha- has ha- happened in the past. So uh, this is basically the story of uh, a very, you know, at least by most people's standards, a small ocean platform, kind of a relic of Britain's defenses in World War II, right? This was something that they built outside the three-mile offshore limit uh, in order to give them kind of a head start if there were uh, German invasions. Yeah, I mean, during the war, the um, American bombers and mine layers used to use the Thames. I mean, at the mouth of Thames, it's wide. It's not a little, not a little river. And they used to follow the river up to London to bomb it and bomb the docks. And so the Admiralty, um, in their infinite wisdom, decided to build a, a row of um, um, like naval fortresses in deep water to start having a go at these planes as they came across and also to engage the e-boats that used to come and drop mines in the dark and attack shipping. So, yeah, that's why, that's why it was there. So uh, after World War II, uh, perhaps uh, unwisely, uh, they didn't remove them all right away, and people started finding other uses uh, for these platforms. One of the people who ultimately found a use for it or thought he had found a use for it was your father, Roy, right? He was going to do pirate radio out there? Yeah, he had a, he had a pirate radio station on, on another one of his wartime forts. It's, uh, it's called the Knock John Forts. It was further up, up the estuary near it. Like nearer, not near London, but it was further up the estuary. And uh, the government brought in the Marine Offences Act and made it illegal for him to to be there. And they prosecuted anybody that that worked for the stations, supplied the stations, or, or gave them advertising. So um, he looked for a, a better jurisdiction, and then ended up on on the Ruffs Towers, uh, where he had the bizarre idea of declaring independence and, and didn't actually get around to putting his station back on the air. But we we did spend a lot of time out there in isolation. And, of course, in those days, there was no mobile phones, there was no radio contact. And, uh, I mean, much like the, not, not quite like the astronauts, but much like the astronauts, we would, the boat would go away and my dad would say, oh, see you in three weeks' time. And three weeks would come, go by and you'd be looking uh, to the southwest waiting for the boat to turn up and it didn't turn up and another week went by and, a, and another week went by. So it, was, it was kind of a strange environment for a young lad to be brought up in. Right, and you were young. This a lot of this is, begins when you're like 14 years old, right? Yeah, I got involved when I was 14. Um, my father was because the station had been closed down and the revenues had been stopped. He uh, he was obviously struggling for staff and wages and things. And I volunteered I, at the time. I was away at uh, boarding school in North Wales, which is quite an austere, sort of cold and, and not particularly pleasant sort of place to be. So a bit of an adventure in the North Sea seemed a nice idea. I mean, I had in mind. It would probably last six months, but it went on. I mean, we've got 50 years coming up in next September. Right. So, yeah, 1967, uh, it gets declared the Principality of Sealand uh, by uh, your family and some other friends and followers, and you start becoming uh, lords and ladies. Tell us about that. Why, why, why do that? Why recreate the structure of royalty out there? Right. Well, we made it a principality to um, simplify the law. I mean, it was myself, my, my mum and dad, and, uh, and my sister, and that was it. And, and also, when you were there, there was 
unlike today, there's internet and communication, and you can carry on your business from anywhere in the world near enough. Of course, we couldn't in those days, so we structured the government, made it a constitutional monarchy. But um, I can re relate, really relate to the uh, the astronaut lady there and the other speaking. I've only just uh, been put on here to, to to hear what you're saying in the last few minutes. But you know, it makes you a, a, a different kind of a person being at sea. Um, it it was just so isolated. But you you asked her about um, why she did it and, and and everything. I mean, I I can't think of any bigger and better adventure than going into space. You know, and getting involved with that. Probably not probably not of my age, but. And the, the Lord and Lady things is because, I mean, obviously it's quite an expensive thing to maintain and and um, and pay all the bits and bobs and, you know, offshore is expensive to run. And uh, so we we issue Lord and Lady titles. I mean, they make great Christmas presents this time of the year as we get really busy with it. And this is what pays for everything. Um, you know, staff, wages, fuel, the you know, boat trips backwards and forwards. And we have our own boats as well. So... Uh, it's there on our website, sealandgov.org. Um, but that's, you know, that's why we do it, to support what we do. And we, and we get a lot of support from the public, I have to say, and a lot from the states. So um, the, 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 uh, the government uh, of Great Britain wasn't really in love with the idea of having a sovereign nation six miles away from its shore, no matter how benign and nice you guys were. Uh, and, and there was a, an incident where you kind of fired a warning shot at a British government ship approaching uh, the sea tower. Um, and, and that sort of gave Great Britain its first opening to maybe try to shut you down. Ultimately, your father, they attempted to arrest and, and try your father, right? Yeah, indeed. I mean, what you have to understand is that these forts were built in international waters, illegally, really. But it was a time of war and no one really cared and they did their job. And at the end of it, um, when the government abandoned the forts, they should have should have destroyed them. I mean, that's that's how international law works, you know. Uh, but they left this structure in international waters. There was one other as well, one other structure and one other fort, Sunkhead Forts. And we could see it from Sealand. And uh, one day this tug goes past and we see it going over to Sunkhead Forts. We see a helicopter come up, go past. I mean, this is back in about, I suppose, about 67, 68. And, and two or three days, uh, we see all this activity going around this port. And all of a sudden, there's this huge explosion. They're blowing it out of the water. Because they, they, they consider we could be the Cuba off the east coast of England. And, you know, and, and governments don't like anything they can't control. So they were, you know, they were, they were trying to close us down. And, and there was a meeting with Harold Wilson, uh, then, the then prime minister. Yeah. Uh, with the with the services and the army, the navy, the air force, and they, they, he said, you know, like we've got to we've got to get these people off of there. We've got to do something about it. And um, the job was given to the navy and the, and the marines, of course, because they had all the right kit and everything. But they said to Wilson, um, we believe they have an electric fence out there, and we believe that um, there could be loss of life on on the side of the services, the British services, and also the Bates family. And Wilson wouldn't countenance it, but he said, you know, why do you think they've got an electric fence? And he said, well, they showed him pictures and written down the side of the fort was danger, 10,000 volts. Well, I think I held the British Navy back with an old old pot of paint and a paintbrush. To, we had, we didn't even have a generator. I think at the time we were still on candles before we moved forward to hurricane lamps, then tilly lamps and then generators. But, you know, quite an amusing time. Um, so we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. We have to tell you the story of the Battle of Sealand. I should tell you that as we take this break, we will be playing the uh, national anthem of Sealand. So we would ask you to remove your hats 
possibly place your hands over your hearts as we uh, play this proud anthem. This is the point where ordinarily Kion Wolf uh, thanks everybody. She's not here today, but thanks Kion Wolf for what you do every day, and thanks to Betsy Kaplan. She's taken over on the board uh, and is the, the technical producer of today's show. Today's show was conceived of and produced uh, by Josh Nalea, the part of uh, Bill Curry was played by uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, and we'll be back tomorrow with a show that we did a little while ago. Uh, it was actually um, a show about people who don't have language. Um, there's a novel about this, but there actually are people in this world, people on this planet, who don't have a language at all. Uh, and we'll tell you about that uh, and about people who communicate not using language. Not, like no sign language, no nothing. Uh, <coughs> anyway, so uh, right now we're talking about the story of Sealand. Uh, we're, we're talking to Michael Bates, uh, Prince of the Micro nation Sealand and the author of the book Holding the Fort Sealand just to reset uh, is um, a platform that was uh, constructed uh, by the British government during World War II uh, then they <clears throat> abandoned it uh, it's been taken over by various people but held for the longest time by far uh, by uh, the Bates family uh, and Michael Bates uh, it is time to talk about uh, the instance in which one group of people decided maybe they could take this away from you so your father was lured on uh, on essentially a wild goose chase, a kind of trap. He was lured onto the continent uh, by some people uh, purporting to have a business deal. You're back on the platform. You're back on Sealand. And, and what happened? Well, on one sunny, calm morning, this large, rather large helicopter turns up. I was there on my own. It was um, Dutch KLM, the Dutch National Airline, big helicopter. And um, we had masts on the top of the, the fortress to stop helicopters landing. And I was waving it away, and and then and some guy comes down on a, on a winch wire. He's a guy I've, I've met before. He was meant to be a business associate of ours. He was a German tax consultant, in, indeed. And um, then another guy comes down, and I don't know what I'm going to do here sort of thing. My dad's sort of uh, at this meeting, and things are meant to be really good. And I thought, well, I can't really start messing all the paintwork up by, with, a, with a battle and getting blood all over it. <laughs> so anyway, I, I tried talking to them and they, they showed me a telex purporting to be my father. Uh, but I knew that telexes could be faked and uh, I wasn't happy with it. And I said to them, you know, bring my father out tomorrow or whatever and, and well, I'll let you take over, but only if my father's there. And uh, one thing led to another. We were in this steel room and the door gets slammed and I'm locked in this room. And I was locked in there for about three days. They let me out at one point where they tied my hands through the window and they uh, they found some 20 gauge shotgun shells and we didn't have a 20 gauge shotgun out there part of my just shotgun shell collection uh as you did in those days and um <laughs> well they didn't believe i didn't have a weapon in the room so they anyway they let me outside and they, they uh, had my hands were tied up and and we ended up fighting outside and they they jumped all over me and tied my 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 ankles together, my knees together, my elbows, hands, and my hands out of my knees. They picked me up, carried me to the side, and said in German to one to the other, let's throw this bastard over the side. It's far too much trouble. <laughs> and I speak a little German, so I heard what they said. Um, uh, thankfully, they, they didn't. 
And no, my life didn't um, rush before my eyes. I was just bloody furious. But anyway, they, they took me back in the room, threw me in this room. And the next morning, a Dutch trawler turns up, a uh, load more guys. Um, and I'm let out of this room and uh, they give me the option to go on this Dutch trawler to England, go on it to Holland or to stay there. So I said, well, I'll stay there. Um, but I, but I didn't want, they said, oh, well, you've got to lock him back in the room because he's too dangerous to allow out. So I didn't want my father coming back and getting himself killed. So I said, okay, take me to England. The skipper of the boat wouldn't take me to England because he was worried about piracy and kidnapping laws. So I ended up going to Holland and uh, we, I was landed illegally with no passport in the middle of the night. I managed to get back to England the next day and my dad got back a day or so later from his travels and um, we then planned and schemed how to take the fortress back, which was difficult because we'd made it impregnable. I mean, it was a fortress after all. Um, so we were going to go out with a, with a rib, a rigid inflatable boat, and uh, with a plastic scaling ladder and, and scale it in the dark. And, uh, but the weather was bad and we had a phone call from a guy that was a German guy that we, that we knew that had got involved with these people, but we, we knew him from before. And he'd obviously just realised that he was probably backing the wrong horse. So he, he said, you know, they're sending te 10 ex-Belgian paratroopers out with these submachine guns to, to reinforce the place. And if you don't take it back to night, you know, you, you, you're not going to get back. So we phoned a friend of ours up, John Crewson, who owned a helicopter company uh, locally in Essex. And John had flown in many James Bond films, uh, stunt flying inside warehouses, and a really good pilot. And uh, he was straight up for it straight away. There was no talk about money or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So the next that next morning, that dawn, we, we drove over to the local airport. We climbed over the barbed wire fence. We got to the helicopter. It was still dark. Took the doors off in the dark. Tied ropes on the on the airframe. And we flew out. And I, was, I remember the control tower saying, um, um, you know, what's your destination? He said, the destination is Sealand to take dawn shots. <laughs> Obviously inferring we've taken journalists out. Uh, and we took off. And we fly out there and we, and we go right up the coast to Suffolk and we fly into the wind. And we're flying towards it, probably a metre above the sea. And I can see this yellow oilskin, this strange thing on deck. It was, a, it was a German guy who was meant to be on guard, keeping watch, wearing a yellow oilskin coat, brightly seen from the distance. And uh, the first thing he saw was a helicopter appear from underneath the platform. Uh, and his words were, it frightened the shit out of him. And so anyway, we, we, we hovered between two high masts. And um, the first man down was meant to collapse the mast, pull the mast down, so the helicopter land and offload the people uh, because the, the pilot was concerned. I mean, all his insurance was negated and negated when he when he offered to do what he did. And in fact, on the way out, he said, "Are we armed?" And we said, "Yeah, we got pickaxe handles." We we told him lies because we didn't want to upset him. And he said, "Well, I got a three five seven Magnum under my coat." And he pulled out this his handgun. So okay, that's cool, right? Anyway, so he, I was the first man down. I was meant to pull the mast away, but the Germans were running out of the building below me. So I ran to the edge, edge of the building, it's about 12 foot up, 12 foot high off the helipad, and I had to jump over this water tank, which is about four foot wide. So I, I had a, I had a sawn-off shotgun with me, on a lanyard, and I jumped clear over this water tank, dropped 12 foot. Uh, the safety was off, obviously, because I was all ready to go. It was the butt of the shotgun hit the deck, and boom! Uh, and everybody put their hands up in the air, and in one fell swoop, I. Well, the insurrection and nearly committed patricide because my father wasn't very far away at the time. 
But yeah, it was it was a big adrenaline rush, I have to say. So I have to ask Michael Bates, why isn't this a major motion picture? I mean, every I've known about Sealand and I've known this story for quite some time. Why? why how come nobody's made a movie of this? Well, we sold the film rights to Warner Brothers years ago. And uh, uh, a friend of mine, I, I met him through the film, he's a film producer himself, he wrote a film script for Warner Brothers, and it was a love story. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, my mum and dad were hugely in love with each other, and, and it was a, you know, I said, but it's not a love story. It's more like a lethal weapon Mel Gibson-type film, you know, Fang Crash Wallop. No, 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 he kept saying it's a love story. I said, I'll tell you what, if love stories sell films, you do the film, and I'll write my book. And I sat down and wrote my book. Uh, Warner Brothers let the... Um, let the film rights go after five years when the recession came along and I think they thinned down their, their portfolio. And then when my dad passed away, my my film producer friend came over and he helped carry the coffin. He's a very good friend of ours now. And um, and interest was reignited. And, uh, well, watch this space. But, yeah, there, there will be a Hollywood movie. But I'm not, I'm not uh, allowed to talk about it at the moment. All right. It's, that sounds very exciting. At last, Sealand. Uh, I wish we had time for more. We're uh, essentially out of time. We've been talking to Michael Bates. There's more to, to tell of the story of Sealand. You can certainly read the book. Uh, there's stories online. His book is called Holding the Fort. Uh, and you can also get on the website and become a lord or a lady or uh, something like that, if that appeals to you. But there's uh, much more to tell of the story of Sealand and what it's been used for since then. Let's just say it was tailor-made for the digital industry where sometimes it would be good to maybe have do what they call co-location where you have a, a server that uh, you don't want people getting their hands on. All right. So, Michael Bates, thank you very much. Thanks very much to Josh Nalea. Let me just quickly tell you that tomorrow, as I told you, we're going to have that show about people who don't have language tonight. And it's sold out, so don't don't. Don't try to show up. I'll be interviewing John Meacham on stage at Infinity Hall, uh, where we hope to be able to turn that around for our Friday show. John Meacham, of course, is the Pulitzer Prize winning biographer, biographer of Andrew Jackson, Thomas Jefferson, most recently George H.W. Bush. Um, and I, I'm, I, will, I know for a fact that John Meacham and I will have a conversation tonight, uh, particularly about how history shines a light uh, on the present moment and, and maybe ways in which it doesn't really people misapply it to the present moment, but uh, you can't talk to a biographer of Andrew Jackson and not talk about the modern version of that kind of populism. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for helping out on the board today, taking over the board today, uh, and to Josh and Leah for producing, and we'll be back, as I say, with uh, two more exciting shows for the rest of the week.